Welcome to the weekly sermon podcast of River City Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Our mission is to awaken people to the transforming presence and power of God's love. To find out more, visit rivercitychurch.com and thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Hope everyone had a great Christmas holiday. Hopefully there was some good travel. Good morning. So hi, everyone. My name is Aaron Schoberg, and I'm a member here at River City. I'm happy to be preaching today. I believe God's called me to be a channel uh, for his word, and this is a great avenue for that, and I hope that the word that we have today will bless you. Uh, What a great worship set we had today. Uh, It was very simple, but it was beautiful. I loved it. I love... Thank you. Thank you, Jemima. Uh, wherever you are. Um, <laughs> um, I, I love Be Thou My Vision. It's one of my favorite songs. And it's interesting for me, like, my mind and my life gets cluttered with so many other things in my life. And whether it be my own sense of status or entitlement or fill in the blank, whatever <laughs> it, has, it can be, that I realize as I'm singing the song, I'm like, Be Thou My Vision, O Lord of my heart. May you be first. May you be king in my heart. And I have to just stop. And just pray about that and say, God, that's my hope. <laughs> be that for me, Lord. Be that for me. Because I want Jesus to be the center. I don't want to be filled with other things that block my freedom and block my value, who I, my, the value that God has for me as I stand before him. So today we're going to be talking about a new series, which is the kingdom of God. Now, more than anything else, Jesus talked about the kingdom of God. That was one thing that epitomized his ministry was kingdom preaching. Kingdom of heaven is how Matthew puts it. Kingdom of God is how the other gospels put it. But this world uh, rejects the kingdom of God in one extreme or another. Uh, But that's what we're called to be, be a part of his kingdom. Now, even the word, even the phrase, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, seems kind of strange, Uh, I think for most people who are not Christians, when they hear the phrase kingdom of God, they might think of a place with borders. Where right here, this is the kingdom of God on this side, and on this side, this is not the kingdom of God. And maybe on this side, when you say kingdom of God, you're automatically thinking it's not democratic, so obviously it's horrible. Or that it's kingdom of God, so it's kind of like a theocracy, like something that where Sharia law or even the Inquisition or the Crusades took place. And it's not very appealing. And I think for the past few hundred years, Christians have have had that response too. But instead of saying that's true, they went the other direction and they relegated the kingdom of heaven to something that happens after you die. And so for many people, when they read the phrase kingdom of heaven, it's, oh yeah, that's what happens, not here. There's no expectations here. It's, It's what happens after, after you die. But neither of those things are true. I mean, even in the book of Luke, Jesus says, there are people who will say, oh, there's the kingdom, it's over there, or here it is. What does Jesus say? No, it's in you. It's in your midst. He also says in, his, in the Lord's Prayer, in the great Sermon on the Mount, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not something simply that we're waiting for. It's something that we can experience right now. It's something that God's calling you to right now, to be a part of his kingdom. At the very center of a kingdom is a king. It's Jesus himself. He is King Jesus. And when he 
was rose from the dead and ascended on high, he became king of kings and lord of lords. This is a challenging statement for many governments. It's one of the reasons why the early Christians were persecuted. For that, that specific thing, they would say, Christians, offer incense to Caesar. Worship him. Just worship, just to say it. They said, we can't do that. Because even Caesar has someone he's accountable to. Even the president has someone he's accountable to. Even this empire over here has someone they're accountable to. It's a bold statement. It's crazy. It is crazy, but it's true. The good thing about God's kingdom is that it's here. It's about how you see yourself. How you see your allegiance even. How you see your family. How you see your job. How you see your community. And the question is, do we take the kingdom of God and we put it in those things or do we allow God's kingdom to transform those things? To infuse those things with his presence in our life. I think it's very easy to take a look at even our culture, which we did talk about this over the summer, um, expressive individualism, this idea that who I am, my rights, is to express myself and to be who, me, who I am, what I'm called to be, what I, what I am. I gotta be me. And that, to some degree, that's true. I'm not gonna say that the, the existential beliefs are bad. They're not necessarily bad. But if we find our value in that, if we find our worth in that, or in our citizenship, or in our status, or our riches, how much money we have, our marriage status, or lack thereof, we're missing something. Very the heart of the, ki- heart of the kingdom, Jesus says this, for whoever would save his life will lose it. You can pull a passage up. Uh, we'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The beautiful, beautiful thing about, about the kingdom of God is that Jesus is at the center of it. The very beautiful thing about who Jesus is is that he's the kind of king who gets on his knees puts on servants' clothes, and washes our feet. If you remember that passage in John, he washed his disciples' feet and he said, no servant is greater than his master. So, do likewise. As I washed your feet, wash each other's feet. This is an upside-down kingdom where the king of all is the one who serves the most, the one who loves the most, the one who comes after us. And I think, I think people are married, if you've had any progress in your marriage, if you've had successes in your marriage, you know this is true. You know this is a basic principle, the servant leadership. You know, places where you're serving each other, where you're most vulnerable, that's where you have your most intimacy. I think, you, I think we know that. And I think even have, with children, we know this too. Uh, you know, if you have any children, it's not when your children are all behaving well. Oh, my nice little kids, they're all behaving well. That's when I love them the most. It's like, well, no. <laughs> it's, it's through the pain, it's through the turmoil, it's through the, the consistent saying, I can't, okay, I'm gonna put Netflix off and I'm going to sit there and I'm gonna read with my child every night consistently. It's giving up that I deserve this kind of thing, that kind of, that I, my status is what matters the most. Letting that go 
and serving and surrendering and loving somebody else, putting somebody else's priorities over ourselves. Now, um, when I was single, I, I got married a little bit late. Um, I had my own sense of entitlement. I, I still have my own sense of entitlement in one way or another. I haven't reached an imperfection, but it was different when I was single. I, I mentioned this before in a previous sermon about uh, me going to China and having this experience. It was really profound. It was around that same time um, where um, my life, and actually it resonated, uh, Michaela, your story resonated with me a great deal. Uh, for this, but um, <clears throat> during that time, I was um, just got out of college, didn't have a stable job, didn't have a, a way of knowing how to pay off all my college loans. I uh, felt lonely, was looking for community, looking for connection, and looking at porn, just to be upfront about it. And even using looking at porn as a way of justifying, saying, I am owed more. I deserve something, and I'm not getting and using that, that real hurt, that real pain, and twisting it, and allowing it to use it as an excuse, as a justification of entitlement. And God did a work on me. God is gracious. As the psalm says, he is gracious to a thousand generations. He loves you, he's compassionate, he's long-suffering, which means he isn't just ready to snap at you and be angry at you. And um, God, in his providence, uh, gave me a book called After You Believe Why Christian Character Matters. Excellent book. It's also by N.T. Wright, another guy. Just, if you've been to this church for a while and you've seen me preach before, I quote him all the time. But uh, this is a great book because it, it, it's actually about God's kingdom. It's really interesting, but it's a very practical book. You know, when you're, when you're a Christian for a while, you usually have one or two different ways of existing as Christians. Um, you can have one way where you are saved by grace and then you go right back to legalism. You go right back to just following the rules. And that's what it's about. Not doing certain things and doing other things. That's what it's about. It's not really right. Or some people who say, it's about grace, and then it's all about grace. Jesus has no expectations for your life whatsoever. That doesn't work either. It's not really truly loving a person if you don't have any expectations of them. And what he talks about in this book, and it really brings to light different passages, about how it's about Christian character. It's about developing healthy habits in your heart, not in a way to accept God or God to accept you, but in a way of reflecting his beauty of his future kingdom and bringing that into your life on the present. Yes. It's about developing that kind of character, that kind of person who is going to be an echo of what the beautiful kingdom of God that we are looking forward to, but living that out in the present right now. It's like one of the examples he gives is, it's like when you're driving a car, you don't drive for the signs, like do not enter, or like the bumpers on the side of the road, do, 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 and you're like, oh, I'm falling asleep, yeah, type of thing. You don't drive for those things, right? They're, they're, they can be helpful, those are the rules, right? Those are the rules of the road. You drive to go somewhere. Yes. You're going somewhere. And that's one of the beautiful things about, about one of the things that he, he wrote about, that what you do matters. It absolutely does, and God loves you immensely but he's calling you to develop character. And his character is love, joy, peace. Now, that's, that is the fruit of the Spirit, but we're tilling that ground. We're surrendering, we're surrendering, we're surrendering. We're allowing that plant to grow 
of love and joy and peace and patience. And these are intentional things. It's not passive. Nor is it aggressive or passive aggressive. It's assertive. And uh, I had to lay down my own entitlement, my own sense of, I deserve this. And God just put it on my heart to, to start a men's group and just have a men's group and just do this with other men because I can't do it on my own. I was single at the time. So um, I, and if you're, if you're a Christian in Jacksonville and you're single, you, you, you realize very quickly you get to know every single person because Jacksonville is like the largest, smallest town. So it's, it's crazy. Like I, I knew hundreds of people. I just messaged hundreds of guys to come to, to, to the group to, to read this book together. And it's interesting. God laid on my heart specific people and I didn't like message them differently. I just messaged everybody. And on the night of the study, it was those specific people who came to my door. I was like, what in the world? This is so weird. But we lived life together. And for five years, we had study after study. And we just had communion together. We had accountability. We had transformation. Transformation in my life. Transformation in their lives. Real change happened. And as a matter of fact, years later when I got married, uh, those men in the group, the majority of my groomsmen, were from that group. Because they, we just were so connected to each other. But at the end, the, the, the end of the day, whether you're married or single, it can be hard. And we have to lay down our sense of entitlement. And the ironic thing about that, by giving our lives to Christ, not just simply as a one-time event, but as a daily practice as a Christian, giving our lives to Christ, the place where we lose our privilege, the I deserve mentality, our status, when we give them up, we throw them at his feet. It's not the place where we lose our rights and our dignity. It really isn't. That's the irony of this whole thing. It's the place where we find our rights and our dignity. The place of surrender is the place you find your worth. Where you give up your sense of entitlements, where you find the value that God gives you and the value he gives those around you. So we're going to um, look at the passage for today. We do have a passage. Um, I think that Jesus is communicating this truth to us. So let's go ahead and let's read it. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling a little child to himself, he stood him in the middle of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are turned, the word literally is repent, unless you are turned, and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So whoever humbles himself like this little child, this one is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives such a little child in my name receives me, but whoever makes one of these little ones who believes in my name, believes in me, to stumble and go astray, it would be better for him to have a massive millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the deepest part of the ocean. Wow. All right, let's pray. <laughs> uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Um, sometimes it's hard. Uh, but I pray, Lord, that we would hear. I pray that I would not get in the way of your word for people. I pray that you would transform lives. I pray that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that we would live it. I pray that we would recognize who you are and that we would infuse our lives with your presence. Jesus' name, amen. So it's going to be a three-point sermon. I like three-point sermons. It keeps me organized. 
Um, the first point is this. The kingdom of God is about God's faithfulness to his people and ultimately, ultimately a reaffirmation towards God's creation and your place in it. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God is about God's faithfulness to his people and ultimately about a reaffirmation towards God's creation and your place in it. It's a lot there. Uh, it's important because the theme of kingship isn't something only in the New Testament. It's all throughout the Old Testament and goes all the way back to Genesis chapter one and two. Other religions had their own creation stories. They did. And you know, the creation stories didn't simply tell you what the story would happen, but it also told you what something meant. What does it mean to be human? The ancients and other religions and other uh, cultures, they said it was that humans were made out of the blood of war, which means that humans are meant for violence. They're meant for fighting. Other religions said that humans were molded out of clay to be slaves. We, of course, were made out of dust, which means futility. <laughs> Here today, gone tomorrow, but we were given the breath of God. We are told that we are created in God's image. Now, one thing that's really important about this is that the image of God wasn't something new to the, to the, to the Bible, was it? There were other cultures that had images of God, and that was really three different things. Priests, special priests, kings, and idols. But in God, in God's word, everyone is created in God's image. It's not for some people. It's for all people. Now, the image of God gives you lots of different things. Here are a few of them. The image of God in the Bible is for all people. Two, it called, we're called to be representatives, God's representatives here on earth that were called to represent him. In the ancient world, they had idols. They called them images, and they would set them up in temples, and they would say, this is the God that represents that God. I'm not saying that we are idols or anything like that, but what I am saying is that that is a mimicry of what God is and what he's calling you to be. It's a mimicry. Idol worship is by necessity, not simply a degradation of God, but a degradation of yourself. Whether that's bowing before a piece of rock or stone, or that's looking at your sense of entitlement of your job and finding your value in those things, instead of God's kingdom, the value that God gives you. We're called to reflect God's presence into our lives, our family, our work, our school, our community. What we experience here in worship, it's meant to be reflected out into the world. We're called to be priests, which means we intercede for each other. We step in the gap for each other. And we recognize the dignity and worth of our other image bearers. C.S. Lewis says the closest you are, you are to the presence of God, aside from having communion, is the person sitting next to you. He's made it in God's image. This is important. There's lots of counterfeit of this out there. Human rights don't come from the government. That was the case. We would never have freed slaves. Human rights don't come from a secular ideology. Doesn't. Why would, why would we have human rights? Where do they come from? And the person who wrote the Declaration of Independence was a flawed man, and he was a hypocrite. There's no question about that. 
But when you dig down deep and you say, why is taxation without representation wrong? Why is it wrong? You dig down deep, you dig down deep. Why is it wrong? And you're like, oh, it's because all men are created equal, endowed with certain inalienable rights by their creator. It's not some sort of secular utopia that we get our rights from. Embedded even in our own Declaration of Independence, we see this. Again, the man who wrote that, Thomas Jefferson, he was a hypocrite in many ways. He still even wrote about that. And I, I wish the world was different where he didn't, he wasn't such a hypocrite. But, um, but that's where we get our idea of human rights. That's why we have a, such a strong sense of against slavery even and against the oppression of, of people. But it's easy to take the kingdom of God and force it into our agenda or in the agenda of our culture. Absolutely is. It's very easy to do that. And even a cultural Christianity to some degree. I mean, you see this. <laughs> Not to be so Hitler talk. I mean, people always talk about Hitler online and everything. But, um, but you've got to keep in mind, Hitler said, oh, yeah, we're a Christian nation. He also lamented that Christianity was the religion of Germany. He said, I'd rather actually have something closer with the Japanese have with their beliefs. It's like, well, are you really dedicated to Jesus if you say that? <laughs> he also sent brown shirts into the churches so that the pastors don't preach against them and against the Nazi party. He also uh, closed down seminaries, called them illegal seminaries, who disagree with him. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, um, a great theologian, but he uh, was arrested because of that because he started his own illegal seminary and started teaching people the Bible instead of what they wanted to teach him. The question that we have to ask ourselves is that a kingdom of God that's meant to serve Jesus? Or is that trying to take the kingdom of God and fit it into their own status, their own privilege, their own agenda? Is it a recognizing the human rights and dignity of the people around them? Now, William Wilberforce, he's a man who stood up against uh, the African slave trade one of the few people who did this in Parliament back in the 1600s. He said this, what a difference it would be if our system of morality were based on the Bible instead of standards devised by cultural Christians. Our attitude today towards slavery is influenced directly by him. Who stood up despite all of the conventions, the kind of status quo of the day and said, this is morally wrong and it's because it's the gospel. The gospel says this is completely wrong. These are people who are made in God's image and you're treating them like chattel. But that voice that he had was grounded in recognizing that his own status, his own privilege needed to be set aside and to listen to the voice of God. His kingdom first, not this kingdom. God is calling us to live as residents in, in, in his kingdom. He's calling us to reflect his light, to reflect his beauty, to his truth, to the world around us. The kingdom calls us, second point, the kingdom calls us to be like little children and throw off our sense of identity, false sense of identity and entitlement. Let me read that again. <laughs> kingdom of God, God's kingdom calls us to be like little children and throw off our sense of entitlement and false identi identity. Uh, discipleship means reversing the world's standards of greatness and embracing a position of loneliness. And this is hard for Americans um, today because we believe in upward mobility. We absolutely believe that. I don't think Jesus is attacking that at all. I don't think that, that, that would, that's what he's doing at all. I think what he's saying is that as we are looking 
to better education, to create risks and to, to open new businesses, to recognize that we're still in the service of our community. We're not atomistic individuals. They love the people around us. And we walk in humility still. Now, the disciples themselves, all of Judea, all of Israel, they were suppressed. There's no question about that. By any stretch of the word, victim would apply to them by our standards. The people of Judea, when disciples were saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Who's going to be the greatest? They were people who were oppressed. Their desire, their desire to, to, to overcome Rome, I mean, empire after empire, empire after empire, was really controlling the people, uh, the Jews, the Israelites. It was Babylon, then Assyria, sorry, Assyria, then Babylon, then it was Greece, then it was Rome. And they were under Rome's thumb. There was no upward mobility for them. They had nothing. And then they had their own people, the tax collectors, stealing money from them. And on top of that, they had religious leaders who made it about themselves, who put heavy burdens on them. And then they would virtue signal out in the streets and say, oh God, look how, what great I am. And these were people who were victims and it was the enemy who was taking that feeling of, I, don't, I deserve better than this and twisting it. And now they were wanting to be the greatest in the kingdom. They're forget, forgetting the very principle at the very beginning of creation, who we are as people and to recognize the humanity and love that God has for everyone around us. Their victimization, their pain, their frustration, their oppression, it's on the basis of that they were seeking to the great, the the great, be the greatest in the kingdom. That oppression was real, and the desire to be free from it was too, but it was bringing a sense of entitlement that blinded their eyes, and Jesus is calling them out of this. He's calling them to be like little children. Don't let your victimization your pain, your abuse, your suffering become your prison. Don't let it keep you from experiencing the wealth that God has for you. Now, God's heart is to be close to the victim of trauma. That's what Isaiah 61 is about. He desires to bind their wounds with the help of his loving people. But the enemy wants to use that He wants to use that. Sometimes our own minds do it too to keep ourselves from experiencing our true value. Now, the status of children in the first century were, was very, very low. I know we, we, ha we have a high value of kids. If a kid goes missing, it's a huge deal, and it should be. But in the first century, it wasn't that, that way. If you had a lot of kids, you had value, but the children themselves didn't really have all that value. They had no interest of power or privilege. Actually, the word pateon, which is where we get the term little children from, it could mean, could be translated as an infant, like a baby, or someone who's just before puberty. But they don't, they're not looking for power. They're not looking for prestige. They're weak. They're defenseless. They're vulnerable. A child can really do nothing of himself or herself and will die if left alone. Now, what's really important about this is that Jesus is using the example of a child as a way of, of answering their question. Who is the greatest? 
So the status is what he's really referring to. He's not saying, oh, be like little children and don't have any responsibilities. It's not really what he's saying. <laughs> um, he's not saying, oh, yeah, you can be like a child and, and act immaturely. That, that, that's not what he's, what he's getting at. Uh, or that you have no value, like the culture says. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, get rid of the status. Get rid of trying to be like, better than other people. It is going to get in your way. Get rid of it. Become like a little child. He uses, he uses a child as a, um, as a visual aid. Now, um, I want to say something that's very important because I think, I think sometimes what happens is that when some people hear that, they hear, Jesus wants me to be a doormat. Um, God's not calling you to that. Jesus is our prototype. He was humble. He suffered for our sake. But in no way was he as some passive doormat. It's not who he was. He suffered humility, did not flaunt his superiority. As a matter of fact, the book of Philippians says that he lowered himself. But his love and his humility did not stop him from calling out those in power, calling them out for their sin, speaking to them directly. It didn't stop him from being assertive. It didn't stop him from calling out to the cities who rejected him. He says, woe to you, Bethsaida, because on that final day, it'd be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than you. Because if, they, if I preached to them, they would have repented. Same Jesus who flipped over tables and made a whip and the temple. Jesus isn't aggressive. He isn't passive aggressive. He's not passive. He's assertive. He also was associated with people like John the Baptist, who when the Pharisees came to get baptized, he looked at them and said, who invited you, you brood of vipers? Who warned you of the coming wrath to come? Strong words. But it's the same Jesus who loves, who dies on the cross for us. Um, he isn't some hippie Jesus. <laughs> I know one political commentator say, oh yeah, Jesus is like um, the big Lebowski. It's like, come on, just chill out, man. It's like, that's not really Jesus. <laughs> it's a little different. Um, actually, different in a lot of ways. Uh, but he's not passive or aggressive or passive aggressive, um, which all can be forms of manipulation in their own right. <clears throat> and I, I want to make sure we're very clear on this. Humility is not the same thing as passivity because those things can be confused. And it's easy to get those things confused. Humility is not passivity. So here's, here's a quote from a man named Henry Cloud. Um, he wrote a book called Boundaries. We actually, I read this with my group of guys. If, if you haven't read it, I recommend you read the book. And I recommend you read it with people who can agree with you on this. Because Boundaries is so important. <laughs> but he says this. Evil is an act of force. And passivity can become an ally of evil. By not pushing against it, passivity never pays, by not pushing against it, passivity never pays off. God will match our effort, but he will never do our work for us. That would be an invasion of our boundaries. He wants us to be assertive and active, seeking and knocking on the door of life. Jesus is not calling you to, to be a doormat. Um, I sometimes will go, as I'm preparing for sermons or just reading books, to parks and to nat you know, natural reserves. Uh, Tilly Fowler Park is one I, one I usually go to, just to 
practice and study. And sometimes I'll read books going there. And uh, a few years ago, I was reading a book and it was on the temple of God and the mission of the church. I was reading the book and sometimes I, I, I walk and read, which is a strange thing to do, but I feel like I know the place pretty well. <laughs> Don't want to run into a tree or anything. But um, the, uh, there was a couple, I was there, an older couple, and the man stopped me. He's like, hey, uh, what book are you reading? I'm like, oh, it's, on, it's a Christian book on the temple. And he's like, well, I don't believe in that stuff. Said, my mother was abused by my father. And she said, I have to take it because Jesus says to turn the other cheek. And I was like, uh, okay, uh, da, da, da. I wanted to say, stop him and say, that's not the context. And the moment you say something like that, it's like white noise to some people. They're like, oh yeah, not the context. I know that that's song and dance. And I wanted to sit down and have coffee with him and just talk with him and... and uh, yeah, unfortunately, I missed that opportunity. Um, didn't know if you really had to, to, to do that. Um, but a lot of people have that mentality. If you're in an abusive situation, get out of it. 100% get out of it. Um, that's, not, that's not what Jesus is calling you to do at all. Passivity is not humility. It is not. Don't confuse it to you. Jesus would not do that. Jesus is our prototype. You know, Jesus is called the image of the invisible God by Paul. He says that we are being conformed to the image of Christ because who we are called to be is to be like him. Later in this chapter, um, and this is not on the basis of abuse, but just by disagreement and working to not get uh, reconciled, um, Jesus goes into talking about people who have hurt your feelings or have uh, done, something, done you wrong. Again, not a situation of domestic abuse. And what you're called to do is to go talk to them directly. Not ignore it. Talk to them. And if they say, I'm still doing it, you get somebody else and you involve them. And then if they still don't have any, any interest in changing, you get the whole community of believers. And if they still don't, that's when you sever that relationship. That's a thing. It's actually in chapter 18. <laughs> this verse where we're getting this from, he explains this. But I think some people choose passivity for different reasons, and they confuse it with humility. And here's some, some reasons. As a matter of fact, I think we have a graphic um, as well, but, um, but we can start here. Um, some reasons that people are passive is because they fear hurting people's feelings. Sometimes people need to hear truth for their own sake. They fear abandonment and separateness. They want to be totally dependent on others. They feel, fear others' anger, punishment, shame, being seen as bad, selfish, or unspiritual. There's a lot of spiritual abuse that happens in some churches where spiritual leaders don't want to be called out. And they call you unspiritual if you do. That's, uh, I'm listening to the, um, the rise and fall of Mars Hill, and it's all about that. Um, uh, they fear their overstrict critical conscience, experience of guilt. You know, why'd you say that? Why'd you say that? That voice. And they fear that. And they don't want to speak up. All these are excuses to not speak up. And again, no one is saying that you need to just forgive and just forget. That's not what we're saying here. It isn't. But what we are saying is that sometimes it takes healing. Sometimes it takes years. Sometimes it takes uh, decades what God is calling you to be is not just a passive person, but be a person who is assertive, not an aggressive person either. As a matter of fact, this is the graphic I want to show up here. 
this, this one actually goes with the quote that, of Henry Nouwen, where you have the area of no choice is passivity and aggression, and then at the top we actually have an area of choice. It's where you actually have, can choose things, and that's uh, being assertive. So let's, uh, let's go on to the third point, which is Jesus' the kingdom expectations. And like I mentioned before, God does ex- have expectations for our lives. So the heart of God's kingdom is the reciprocation of his acceptance, forgiveness, and love. God is calling us to love. The love that we receive is the love we give. Freely you've received, freely give. Now, in this passage, in, the, uh, in Matthew chapter 18, at the very end, he gives a parable. And in the parable, uh, Jesus uses the example of a king who's a gracious king. He's a gracious king. And um, it's kind of a hard passage to accept, actually, but um, I think it's important. So this gracious king has a person who owes him, for our day, billions of dollars. There's no way he can pay it off. He says, you're forgiven. You're completely forgiven. All that's gone. And he says, yeah, that's great. That's great. So he goes out and he finds someone who owes him a few thousand dollars and he grabs him and begins to choke him. Say, give me my money and throws him into jail. When the king found out about this, he said, what? I gave you so much. I forgave you. And you couldn't reciprocate somebody in something small? We're reversing this order. The man who has had a, owed a few thousand dollars, you're set free, and the unworthy servant, you're going to be in there until you pay off all your debt. That's a hard passage. I don't think it's a, um, a theology on, on punishment. I don't think he's even talking about losing your salvation. I don't think it's anything about that. I don't think that's the point at all. It's the point if you get God's grace, if you understand it, if you understand the freedom that he gives you, yeah, there's nothing else you can do but just to give it out. There's nothing else you can do. The kind of grace that God gives is the grace that you give. It's the ethic of reciprocation. There's many people in the church that do come in and they, they, they become Christians and then they turn into legalism. They go back to sin. They go back into some sort of backbiting. And he's calling us just to get out of that. Get out of it. And be gracious, gracious Christians like little children. All right, so um, I want to I want to work against the enemy's voice here too, because there's some people again who are um, who maybe in this room who feel like there's sometimes you try to forgive and you can't. But I think it's important to note this. This is another quote from Henry Cloud. The Bible is clear about two principles. Number one, we always need to forgive. But two, we don't always achieve reconciliation. Forgiveness is something that we do in our hearts. We release someone from a debt that they owe us. We no longer condemn her. She is clean. Only one party is needed for forgiveness, me. The person who owes me a debt does not have to ask my forgiveness. It is a work of grace in my heart. It's also important not to confuse forgiveness for forgetting. Christ is not asking us to do that, and there are times that we need to hold people accountable for true pain that they caused. It's true. And that they are causing. This is actually an act of love. Putting up with abuse and bad behavior in the name of forgiveness is not okay. And this is another quote by Henry Cloud. 
<clears throat> Many people are too quick to trust someone in the, name of in the name of forgiveness and not make sure that the other person is producing fruit in keeping with repentance. To continue to open yourself up emotionally to an abusive or an addicted person without seeing true change is foolish. Forgive. Regard your heart, your heart until you see sustained change. Forgiveness is possible. However, reconciliation isn't always possible. It's about what you're doing in your own heart before God. It's to recognize the image of God, the worthness of another person. And there is a small death that happens when you forgive. There really is. Especially if someone's done me wrong. And, and that's, that's that status. That's that entitlement. That we have to lay it down and give it to the feet of Jesus. And that giving to the feet of Jesus, people say that phrase a lot. That's not a passive thing. It's not an aggressive thing. I'm going to give it to the feet of Jesus. <laughs> it's an assertive thing. I'm looking at this. And I might, again, I might need to talk to people about this healing, about getting healing from this wound. I may need it to have years and years and years of that, or even counseling. But God is calling us to that. In the end... Seek first the kingdom of God because the place of our surrender is the place of our worth. God loves you immensely. He's calling you. He's affirming you. He's beckoning you to surrender to him. Not to, to, to take something. Not to take you away from this world. But to give you gifts. To fill you with his presence and purpose. Let's pray. God, you are the God who gives us our dignity and our worth. You're a God who loves us, who's close to us like a whisper. And I just pray, Lord, that your word would stay, that it wouldn't leave, that it would stay in our hearts and our minds as we go into the week. If there's any people here who harbor unforgiveness or a hard time just letting go of that privilege and status, even if it's coming from a place of pain, I pray that you bring healing this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.